Hi folks, I'm Alan Watt standing in for John Stadmiller for the next couple of hours and this is February the 15th, 2008. For newcomers, I always ask them to get my own website, that's that's cuttingthroughthematrix.com, where you'll find hundreds of hours of talks from the past to listen to, which help fill in all the little blank spots that we have in our remote and even recent history. And I show you all the various groups that make up the big monolithic structure that we call the New World Order, and I tell you where it's going and the methods it's using to guide us all there. Also look into alanwattsentinel.eu and download the transcripts of these same talks and print them up and pass them around to your friends in the various languages of Europe. What's happening today to most people is just a feeling of uneasiness because we live such short lives and when we see things rapidly changing in our own lifetime, we get kind of nervous. We get nervous because being human, we like to have a sort of permanence throughout our lives in some form or another. You'll notice even today, in any town, even villages and so on, buildings go up, last about five, ten years, and they're knocked down again. And that's also intentional, so there's no, no feeling of permanence there. Not so long ago, you could grow up and walk the same streets or country roads that your grandparents walked and sat under the same trees as they sat under too. You had a feeling of belonging. And that's all been eradicated by design because the, the society that's being created is a form of transitory society. We're all supposed to be on the move in the near future by various means, of course, including terror, plagues and all the rest of it, and economic collapse. That can be found, at least the economic collapse part can be found in Jack Zatali's book, called Millennium, and he was no little fellow uh, giving his opinion. He was a man who helped spearhead uh, the European Union. When he talks about America in Millennium, uh, he said, uh, it's called, also called, uh, subtitled uh, Winners and Losers in the Coming New World Order. He said that people will be leaving America, they'll be the next boat people looking for work abroad. We're all supposed to be transients in the near future. In fact, the new nomads will be a, a form of bureaucratic class uh, who help manage the rest of the world, and they'll go from city to city, wherever they're put, for two months, three months at a time, and then they move on. So everyone's to get used to this idea of no real permanence in their lives. Uh, that way we can be all controlled, all of us, in fact, including the bureaucrats, all the easier. But traveling is not for everyone, and that's the reason they're bringing out the ID cards. You won't be allowed to travel unless you have a perfectly, perfectly clear record of utter groveling obedience to the system. Anything you've broken at all in the past, maybe even speaking back to your teacher, will be on your record, and you're a troublemaker. So you'll be stuck uh, back home where there'll be no work or whatever, or put it into a certain little enclave they'll have set aside for people who don't fit in, at least in the intermediary stages. And I'm not joking about this. As I said at the beginning of this talk, we hate change. We're human beings, we're like some kind of permanence. But over a hundred years ago, what's happening today 
the, make the machinery of what's going to make it all move was set in place a hundred years ago. Big foundations, myriads of groups, including, including the Fabian Society, were in motion to create this wave that took all this time, a hundred years, to manifest itself. I'll be back with more after the following messages. ready for real talk radio you're listening to the national intel report with your host john statmiller hi folks i'm alan watt filling in for john for the next two hours just going over some of the forces that work behind change because there are very real organized forces nothing happens in the history of the modern world without it being planned that way. And we do see the ongoing plans as bureaucrats and different factions of governments cross the sea all the time and talk to their cohorts and other departments, similar departments, bypassing congresses and parliaments and all the rest of it, a process that was actually set up as far back as the League of Nations, the precursor of the United Nations. And they've been doing that for over a hundred years now. Or about a hundred years now is pretty well close to it. And H.G. Wells, a member of the Fabian Society, one of the big groups that was set up that calls itself sort of left of center. But really it was chartered again by the crown of England to lead the people who were the working class along a certain path, believing it would be their champion. They have a Marxist outlook, or, and they're often blamed to be Marxist, but there's nothing Marxist about them. There's no left and right paradigm here. What we have are simply agencies set up to lead both sides, and any other sides in between, they'll always give you their leaders. And that's what they planned when they set up the Fabian Society in England. The Fabian Society had the exact same agenda that the later Nazis were blamed for having they weren't talking about eliminating poverty by giving everyone work they also went into eugenics a big big part of their program eugenics and breeding they blamed the poor being poor because of hereditary defects in their genetic structure their idea was to eliminate this eventually through science and through governmental implementation of laws and regulations to limit such inferior genes from manifesting as human beings. In other words, euthanasia would be used for certain people, sterilization on a mass scale, and all of that stuff, all that beautiful stuff that came down the pike in the 1940s was also discussed at the Fabian Society it is set up at the beginning of the 1900s, again sponsored by what they call in Britain the establishment, meaning the crown, royalty, all the, all the hundreds of families that still control Britain, all that way from the Norman era. And they all go through the Norman lineages. So they set up this Fabian society, and they also believed in a religion, a particular religion. 
In fact, all of the agencies and societies and big foundations believe in a particular religion, a religion which is based, again, on Darwinism. Darwinism with his right for the survival of the fittest. And big, powerful institutions were set up in the 1800s. In fact, the Cecil Rhodes was just one front organization, again, given permission to exist, chartered by the Crown. It merged with Lord Alfred Milner's Round Table Society and became the Royal Institute for International Affairs. Uh, that was to recruit most media personnel into the organization and politicians who could have dual functions, supposedly serving the country and at the same time swearing allegiance to a global governmental system. And they would shepherd whole nations of people along a certain path, a predestined order of things where no inferior types would eventually exist. The Fabian Society's part in that was to lead the left wing along the same path, and they would sponsor non-governmental organizations paid for by the big institutions that people thought were uh, philanthropic, charitable in their ways. And they'd pay for foundations, these non-governmental organizations, to come into being and champion all these causes, supposedly on behalf of the people. At least that's how the general public would perceive these groups, championing their rights. But everything that the non-governmental organizations demand, the governments are only too happy to comply with. And it always means a new layer of bureaucrats making laws and regulating your life which is exactly how the plan works. That's the same system, the exact same system as the Soviet system was set up to be. Soviet means rule by councils. Under the pretext of speaking for the people, various organizations would be formed, workers' organizations, certain factory organizations, but the top leaders were always picked by the Politburo. Here, the top leaders for the NGOs, the ones that are acceptable to the United Nations, and look at all the lists of them, it's quite interesting to see who's on them, the leaders are picked and funded by the big foundations, who then lobby governments to demand certain laws, and the governments play this little game of, we're glad you asked, we're ready to do it anyway, we just happen to have this bill drafted up. And that's how the corn game works, and they pretend that we live under a democracy. We, love, we live under a scientific dictatorship. Everything in the system is run and regulated by science and technocrats. The definition of a technocrat was given by Professor Carol Quigley in his book Tragedy and Hope and his other book, the Anglo-American establishment, where he goes through much of the history that I'm just giving here. And he said a technocrat is someone who may be elected sometimes into politics, but generally is appointed. And they come out of politics as advisors and so on, and they're funded heavily, given tremendous power, more power than the politicians are given, to work behind the scenes. They're the movers and shakers who get things going, get things together. They're the fixers who travel the globe. And they don't have to respond to the public for anything that they do because they're unelected. That's the Kissinger types and the Maurice Strongs. 
and a whole bunch of other ones. They also move in and out of the United Nations positions, and you'll find the same thing with the guys I've just mentioned. Technocrats, they are not responsible, as they say, to any public uh, comeback for anything they do, and quickly said that they who wield the real power are content with the knowledge that they have real power, where politicians do not have the same amount of power, because they are answerable, at least in theory, to the public and public opinion. Therefore, a hundred years ago, everything that's happening today was written down and debated how society would run, how every segment of society would be run, how children and what ages of children would be targeted, how the school systems would be run, how they could even pick child children at school and possibly use drugs if they became a nuisance or they were a bit too bright and inquiring. A hundred years ago. Because they had to make sure that coming through this big transitory phase from a very old way of living, it wasn't really that old, we came out of serfdom, had about 150 years of temporary possibility of individuality, and now we're back into the mass man again. But they, they didn't want us going through this big change, the big, big change, to serve a world system with bright people, well-educated people within society, because they could possibly lead the mob, as they call the people, against those who planned this particular future. So therefore, means had to be found and devised to test them at school and pick out the possible troublemakers. Now remember, these characters at the top believe in evolution. And that's only one part of their religion, really. But they, they really do believe in it sincerely. And why should they believe so much in it? It's because the players who write the big books advocating certain changes, the ones with power, they come from these particular ruling families. Very, very old families that go down through history. The moneyed ones that move, they move down through time and create empires, they create capitals of finance. And then as they pull out to move to their next new haven or Babylon, they collapse the system behind them. And yet even as they collapse it, they still leave it in an impoverished state and yet part of a bigger empire, always creating a bigger and bigger empire. H.G. Wells, a member, a founding member of the Fabian Society, goes through some of that in his various literature. Now, Wells himself was trained by Sir Thomas Huxley, the grandfather of Aldo Huxley and Julian Huxley. Sir Thomas Huxley was one of the best friends of Charles Darwin, and he took up the crusade for Darwinism when Darwin died. He recruited Wells and many other well-known writers of the period who became well-known writers, and their whole idea was to influence the public through novels mixed with science and psychology and try to teach the people the virtues, they call them, virtues, guide them along certain paths of th and ways of thinking that would fall in line with this brave new world that they wanted to bring in. So fiction... Uh, very intense fiction, very graphic, visual fiction too, because we imagine things so perfectly well in our minds uh, if we read a good author. 
they would lead us along certain paths of thought where we'd accept sciences we had not seen yet come into play. That's, that's, that's really predictive programming, they call it. Many of these guys became very, very popular, and they also had their movies made uh, from their books. We'll be back with more about this after the following messages. Standing in for John Stadmiller. And uh, like that song, you never heard the words, but it's, uh, this is the end of the innocence indeed. We can't really pretend much longer that we didn't know what was really going on. Getting back to some of the earlier years of those who created the big machinery, people who work literally intergenerationally to bring their plans about. And that's why one of the organizations, the Fabian Society, uh, used the name Fabian because the Emperor Fabian was known for his long-term planning, almost like a chess game. And he knew eventually if he did put out a few ideas here and there, put out certain um, people who could stir up uh, thoughts within society or even his enemies within their gates, he could eventually take them over maybe 50 years down the road. That's how they work. The, the present bunch work in much greater lengths of time periods. And they had the beginning of the New World Order to be kicked off in 2001, planned at the beginning of the 1900s. Lenin talked about it. Now, Lenin and all the other factions of the world were all funded and set up by the same people who already ruled the world. As I say, they always give you the groups to join. They look at society overall, and they, they look at the comebacks from society, different segments and sections of society, how these people would come back at them by forming their own groups, and therefore the easiest way to manage that is to start the groups up yourself, pretending to stand up for the people or the segment of society, and put in your own leaders. Any ones that spontaneously do manage to, to crop up and keep financing themselves, which is a hard thing to do, then you simply put in your infiltrators who eventually start doing more work than anyone else. And being so democratic as all these institutions are, eventually that person who does all the hard work, licks all the envelopes and so on, that gets voted in as president, and then you're off in a different course altogether. Old, old techniques that are still used today. So remember, they always give you your leaders to follow. And if nothing else, they'll keep you going in circles while the big agenda is steamrolling ahead. The whole thing works on the premise that we, the little people at the bottom, whose lives are so short, and remember, it's not just a short life we have. We are different people throughout our lives. We're very, very different people at the age of 15 to 25 even 35, 45, and 50, we're learning all the time. Youngsters are really part of the mass group. They don't know, they don't have their identity yet. They're struggling for it. 
And in the struggle, they conform before they find it. They conform to the peer pressure and they adapt. They want to belong. You don't start to mature until you're in your early 20s, really mid-20s even today. And you're in the workforce and then you're scrabbling for a living. So you're so preoccupied. And they discussed this back in 1910, what I'm talking about right now. And then the time you start catching on something's wrong, you're looking forward to a pension. You're scared to rock the boat unless you lose your job. Maybe they'll kick you out and um, punish you. Maybe you won't get that pension. So they're afraid. They worked out all of the stages that they would bring in. But they also realized they'd have to start the whole ball rolling quickly to give preliminary tests of their agenda. See how it worked on the public. It would show up the weak spots that they hadn't planned too well, and they could go back to the drawing board and reintroduce it more perfectly. That's why they gave you the Roaring Twenties. They called it Roaring because it came in with prohibition, something that was unheard of, because booze has always been used as a great tranquilizer on the masses for centuries and centuries and centuries. The great Egyptians used to give even their bureaucrats about five gallons of beer per day. That's why they've got all these screwy pyramids that are kind of off kilter. And it's never really changed. The elites made sure that if nothing else in the Soviet system, at times in the big cities, um, you might have to queue up for some beans for hours, but you should always get a quick bottle of vodka. So here they are doing something that's against their usual principles to keep the masses happy, and prohibition came in so quickly and easily. They had their big men put in an advance. In fact, the guys who led uh, all the illegal stills and so on, the big boys, the Bronfmans and so on, were brought in to the country in the 1800s, where they sat and did nothing for about 20 years. And suddenly, prohibition came in, and just as suddenly, they had the apparatus up working. All the lines had to transport it across from Canada into the U.S. And even the Kennedy families and many others Many well-known families today made their millions during that period. It wasn't just booze, it was cocaine as well. Cocaine was brought in. And they made it very enticing to the youth who want to be bad naughty, again, you see, uh, to go into these booze cans, the illegal booze cans, get their booze, and they gave the Charleston dance and all that stuff, and the miniskirt, and encouraged massive promiscuity. But because of the fallout in society with venereal disease that went rampant and they didn't have the antibiotics either to treat it with and also the children who were being born uh, and they didn't have all the abortion setups they didn't have the pill they had to go back to the drawing board so that music promiscuity dancing miniskirts pushing sex but they didn't have the rest of the sciences just yet back with more after the following messages you're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network because you can handle the truth. You're tuned in to the National Intel Report, the real talk radio show. Hi, I am Alan Watt, coming through the Matrix, filling in for John Stadmiller talking about how 
long-term plans, plans that work in centuries, are laid and how they're implemented and how those who live through the big changes generally are the last to really understand what's really truly happening. They certainly don't see the long-term planning. They don't know the recent history is kept out of mainstream media, but is found in special publications and special magazines and also magazines put out by these organizations like the Fabian Society and books written by their members. Going back to the Roaring Twenties and the fallout that happened when the teenagers and youngsters suddenly went crazy, being advised to have such a great time, which they did naturally, and they had all these unwanted children. The big orphanages sprung up, the big boys' town type orphanages sprung up, and it didn't work out too well. However, it was a big test. So they went back to the drawing board. They got their, they got their governments, I should say, their governments to use tax money, deals tax money, to put it into massive research on ways to find contraception. So that was done, and then they brought out the same package deal for the 1960s and called it Flower Power, something they borrowed from an experiment in 1920s Germany because that's where the first flower children were brought out at an even smaller scale in experimentation. Everything is linked together. And in the 60s, they made sure they came up with the pill. They also had antibiotics and tried to con, which is a very good con, the public, that they could pretty well clear up any kind of sexually transmitted disease, which wasn't true at all, of course. Anyone who works in the profession knows that. But they certainly did push for that. And then the way to get the population decreased is quite interesting because uh, it goes against what we normally think of as logic. They use a, a different type of logic. They come from a different direction. The whole idea was to create massive promiscuity in the hopes that people would find it harder to bond the earlier they started having their adventures and especially if they had multiple partners, something that Lord Bertrand Russell was talking about. He wrote a book called Roads to Freedom, another big player who eventually were found out later on after World War II was working in MI6 in his later years. These characters are all interrelated, left-wing, right-wing, uh, the aristocratic society members like Russell, all worked in core groups like MI6, working on behalf of the elite, the establishment, the crown, and that establishment that was firmly in place. So they, they introduced, as I say, this promiscuity angle, uh, knowing that not all girls would take contraception. And sure enough, there was still a lot of, of uh, unwanted children, put it that way, or premature children. And how do you deal with that? Well, then they got, they funded the big feminist organizations. They brought them into being. Do you know that all these NGO groups get money from the government to lobby the government? And the government will say the people have demanded, talking about these NGO groups, but they say the people have demanded and we will pass this law or that law or whatever. And out came the mass abortion clinics. 
that was also to get the public to accept the fact that we're just another animal on the planet. Because once we start to dehumanize ourselves from a, a rather sacred position, then hell is a limit. Not the sky, but hell is a limit. And that was the intent. So by encouraging promiscuity, you can actually get a completely different end come to pass, and that is getting society to discredit or at least de-evaluate humanity. Now, until now, it's quite accepted that we're just not, we are just another animal, not a very bright one, and there's too many of us, and they have to bring in, eventually, mandatory sterilization. Something that didn't, didn't again, the Nazis are always given the blame for starting something off, and it's not true at all, because the Eugenic Society, funded by the Rockefeller Foundation and headed by them, uh, were uh, ahead of all of them. They were promoting eugenics from the 1930s onwards. And they had laws eventually passed in different U.S. states that killed thousands uh, of uh, babies, uh, not fetuses. The fetuses are just a baby that's not out yet. And, and uh, they got away with it for, for donkey's years. They also had people who they deemed unfit, unfit members of society, Genet genetically inferior. They had them sterilized. The same bunch who ran all of those different parts of the previous era are running the present, and they're running what's going to be the near future, the coming future. How is this done? It's because foundations are set up with mandates. H.G. Wells and Russell and others have talked about it. They said that foundations can literally work within hundreds of years with a specific mandate. Hiring people, retiring people as they go, their workers, who never ever, who spend their whole life working towards this mandate. That's how they can bring it to pass. We, who are not in these big institutions, are lucky to have a job that lasts two years. We think in very short-term projects, foundations go on, and they can bring about, in true Fabian style, their mandate into fruition. So here we are, where a lot of what was planned, including the total destruction of the family unit, which, which, which was mandated to, to, to be, they had to destroy the basic family unit, well discussed, well written about, because it was still the remnant of a little tribe. And the ultimate goal for government was to have everyone numbered and everyone would be accessible by government authorities and no member of a family or a relative would stand up for you. Everybody would be separated from everyone else. You'd be on your own, which would make you feel psychologically, just psychologically, completely exposed and vulnerable and inferior. Discussed again back in 1910. And on and on it goes. Mandates. Now, how do you get the youth to do what they do? It's very simple. They're hormonally driven. We all know that. We've all been there. But the youth, while they're at uh, satisfying their hormonal drives and the mating imperative, as they call it, uh, don't see the big picture. They're having too much fun. They're part of the mass people. They, 
they haven't had heavy responsibilities come down upon them. And so they take it all for granted. All mammals take into for granted the society they're born into. If a parent doesn't know to warn them, the mammal, and it goes for all mammals, uh, will see nothing wrong with anything within this system that they're born into. They won't ask why money is used or why we use this or that or the other. They accept it all as being quite natural. Cell phones are natural. They call themselves a cell phone uh, generation. So much so that social norms have already altered because they don't know what boundaries are anymore. They've done studies on this. And children will chat with other children, even in the, in the classroom, on their cell phones. It's acceptable. They'll blurt out all personal information to people around them. They don't care who's listening. They have no conception of privacy whatsoever. They have no idea of the value of privacy. When parents phone them and they're in class, they immediately take out the phone and answer right there. And we'll have intimate conversations. They don't know how to address people who are older than themselves. The boundaries have been broken. The norms have gone. And they're being taught to put all of their information up on Internet sites via the different companies they log on to and sign up for. And once again, they don't think there's anything wrong with that because in this society, for the general population, is to be an open society where all data... Everything on you and about you is to be instantly retrievable by government agencies. How far back was that written about? 1905. And here it's coming into play, step by step, Fabian again. And the public live through it and have no idea how it's really happening you think it's just some bad people who are in government at the present time. The old movie called Network said it all. But when the main anchor man on television came out in front of the TV audience and he said, he said, why are you watching us, the TV crew? He said, you're the real people. You're the real people out there. We're fake. We're the illusion. Yet people have been trained through excessive television to want the fantasy life better and more than reality. Fantasy is better, reality sucks, as they go into a virtual world. So that's where we are with, with this, and they're steamrolling ahead, a world with no privacy, where children have no conception of the past or why privacy was so important in the past, why it's still so important today. They can't imagine in their teenage years that the adult population would allow anything really serious to happen to them. They can't imagine that. It's almost unthinkable because even though they think they're young adults and all the rest of it, they're still really dependent upon the adults for everything that they have. And the adults surely wouldn't allow nasty things to happen to them. Quite natural response. But if the mammal can't warn its sibling, its child, because it doesn't know itself that things are wrong, 
then the child won't have much of a chance themselves. They'll take it all for granted. It's normal. What do you do? You give every agency that demands it all of your personal data. That's what's happening. And that's where we are with it. And we know the ID card, once again, was discussed back in 1905. It was also reiterated in the books put out by Lord Bertrand Russell. Read up Science and the Good Life, one of his books, one of his many books, where he talked about eventually credits being used. Money can be anything at all, it doesn't matter, as long as the public uh, are conditioned to accept it. And he said eventually that governments will issue so many credits per week for your spending, because in the future there will be no private property. It's interesting that the abolition of private property was a mandate that came out of the high Masonic groups, including Albert Pike, and also through the Marxist groups, the abolition of private property. You'll find it as far back as Plato in the Republic, because under the guise of a talk with one of his students, Plato talks about this utopia they could bring in. He said, here we are with our estates, our landed estates, where we have to pay servants and have horses and so on and pay for the attendance of those horses and the feed of them and the repair of the buildings and worry about stealing, replacing valuables that are stolen. And he said, wouldn't it be better if we had the, the people pay for our upkeep since we are ruling them? So technically you would own nothing if you were a member of the upper elite. It would be a form of some private corporation, public-private corporation, a trust, you might say. And the public would pay for everything that's stolen, and the public would re- replenish anything that, was, that disappeared or broke or had to be replaced. But the public themselves would have no private property. Only the thing was that no one else was going to pay for anything that was stolen or taken from them. That's the same system that they're heading towards today with Agenda 21 from the great United Nations. Remember, UN is just French for one. It's the one. Everything in this world is to become the great one. George Orwell put it in a better way. He said, in such utopias, some people are more equal than others. And that's exactly the point. It's a tiered system of class. Very rigid, more rigid than anyone that's gone before. Because there's only the masses who really in the future will be mainly superfluous. Again, a debate they've had for over a hundred years. They saw this time coming when machines were so efficient and even robotics become so efficient that they could do away with so much of the menial laboring jobs at the bottom. They then discussed the need to reduce the population. H.G. Wells promoted a figure of one and a half billion people maximum. And 
as far as I can see, they haven't changed that today. Jacques Cousteau, the great guy who loved little fish, fishy fish and little furry animals, detested the common people. Hard thing to swallow, isn't it, when the guys you've been brought up with and watched and been fascinated by tend to be such monsters in reality. Because he gave pretty well the same statistics to a magazine that was interviewing him. We find the same with the great David Suzuki of Canada, who is a geneticist that works for the big high powers world, wildlife fund and other institutions, whose goal again is to reduce the population and create this great paradise of happy habitat areas, only not so happy for the the peasants, they'll be in crowded cities, overcrowded cities like Soil and Green, the movie, and legal living in their very high-tech scattered abodes in the country, like the Dachau's of the Soviet system, because they serve the system. Quite the world they're bringing into place. And meanwhile, we're dancing our way through it and gorging ourselves on fantasy and television and emulating what we see. I'll be back with more after the following messages. Standing in for John Stadmiller. I'll be on again tonight at 8 p.m. on Cutting Through the Matrix on the station. Talking about how things don't simply evolve, the machinery is set in motion generally a hundred years at least before the events start to show themselves to the general population. When it does show itself, the public are stunned, confused, angry, irritated. Definitely, they never really understand what really is at stake, what's happening, and how it's come to be. They tend to think that present politicians have just implemented something out of some kind of crazy scheme that suddenly popped into their heads, and nothing, and nothing is further from the truth. Remember that Karl Marx wrote about the European Union back in the about 1840s, late 1840s. He talked about the unification of the Americas at the same time. He also talked about a Pacific Rim region, three great trading blocks, with a form of provincial government within each that would be subservient to a world government. And we think that's coincidence. And here was a hack journalist, Marx, who was put up in, in a very wealthy apartment, very expensive apartment in London, and funded to write uh, that particular manifesto. There were many other people who participated, just put his name on it eventually, because they wanted him to be a main spokesperson. Interesting enough, I think it was the third or fourth edition of that book that Marx wanted to dedicate it to Charles Darwin. But 
Darwin, who was over the moon to have been asked, decided to decline because he knew they had roles to play. And that Darwin technically had to pretend he was still a member of the, the right-wing type elite, where Marx's job, and I say his job, was to start off the head of the left-wing elite. That's how the game was worked. It was worked out long, long ago. So here we are again, uh, you know, 150 years later, watching the unification of these places happen, because that's how long they've been at it all. And World War One and Two were absolutely necessary to bring this about. Professor Quigley again said wars aren't just fought for gain. That's part of it. The big corporations that rule your country always profit and plunder under many guises, and they never call it plunder. They use a different, different terms, and they always go to free people, just like the Romans were bringing civilization to barbarians as they plundered all the barbarians' countries. It's no different today. But the main purpose of war was to change society. All societies on all sides are changed as government implements policies, takes over the basic necessities of the country, and that's farming, etc., and business and production, and sets up all these layers of bureaucrats to run the ordinary citizens' lives for them. That's the main purpose of it. And he said you can get more change done in five years of war than 50 years of peace and propaganda. I'll be back with more in the next hour after these messages. We need leaders to lead us, not stick us and bleed. 